When I was a kid, we got a dog named Buddy. Now, Buddy was an older dog, a neighborhood stray. He followed my mom home while she was jogging one morning, so I fed him a piece of bologna, and he stayed with us for the last several years of his life, happy to make our green, grassy backyard his new comfortable home. But Buddy kind of changed the way that our backyard looked. My dad had spent a lot of time planting grass and installing a sprinkler system to keep it as green and lush as possible in the Arizona desert. It was a great backyard, but after a while, we started noticing trails of dead grass where Buddy would most frequently walk and run. And it was kind of weird because Buddy had this entire backyard to explore and enjoy. He could have gone anywhere, and sometimes he did, but there were certain pathways that he walked more frequently, certain habits that he developed. And that impacted the look and the shape of our yard. Now, why did he walk those particular paths? What made him create those particular designs in the grass? Was he carving out the most direct path to the safety and security of his food and water bowl? Maybe taking his time to study out the best route to avoid dangers along the way. Maybe leaping joyfully and somewhat recklessly to get to that delicious food. Or was he more interested in avoiding the scary side of the yard, closest to the neighboring Doberman, feeling insecure whenever we, his new other half of man's best friends, would leave him alone, making him feel abandoned or insecure? Or was he angrily and aggressively chasing down the mailman and barking his impotent warnings to Jehovah's Witnesses and other odd-smelling strangers that came to our front door? Hello. He may actually have done all of those things from time to time, but he did a few of them more frequently than others. Until one day, when he escaped from the yard, and a neighborhood lady found him and took him to the pound, and they put him down. And then she came to us and told us about it after the deed had already been done. Rest in peace, buddy. You were a loyal friend. Now, most of what I just told you is true. I did have a dog named Buddy. We did have a nice big grassy backyard. And a woman really did pick him up and take him to the pound where he was eventually put down. Instead of like bringing him directly to us, because she knew where we lived. I mean, what was that all about? And Jehovah's Witnesses really do kind of smell. But mainly, this story is a metaphor to hint at the reasons for the differences in our personalities as explained by the Enneagram. Because the grassy yard and its surrounding distractions is kind of like the environment that we all live in and the potential to experience everything that there is to experience. And Buddy is kind of like our egos, responding to different things around us for different reasons and that gives us different advantages as well as different limitations. And the repetitive pattern of doing certain things over and over again is like the unconscious habits and neural pathways that we develop in the course of our earliest childhood development. Now by observing those well-worn tracks in the yard, we can better understand the motivations and habits of mind that created them in the first place and that unconsciously keep us experiencing only part of the yard and that unconsciously limit us from freely experiencing it all. And that is essentially what we're talking about today in part two of our conversation with Carol Whitaker about the Enneagram, a tool for personal discovery and joy. <laughs> this is Infants on Thrones, the philosophies of men mingled with humans. We are the core. Welcome back to Infants on Thrones. I'm Glenn Ostland, and this is episode 574, The Enneagram, A Tool for Personal Discovery, Part 2, with Carol Whitaker. Now, hopefully you've heard Part 1, where you learn a little bit about Carol, her background as a scientist, a teacher, and someone who walked away from her faith and then walked right back into it using the Enneagram as a way to help her redefine and reconnect with herself and the material and spiritual world around her. And now in part two, we're going to be focusing on the nine personality types of the Enneagram and the reasons that some of these observable habits form. Now, if you'd like to explore the Enneagram with me in more detail, please come and support the podcast on Patreon, where I will be publishing even more material on the Enneagram. But for now, let's get right to it. 
Well, let's see now. There are a number of ways of going about that. Um, one of them is by uh, looking at a stage of development, for example, the habit of emotion and doing it for all nine types. Okay. Or the other way is to take a type and to go through each of the uh, qualities of that, of that type. I'm open to uh, whatever you feel we should do. All right. And you, and, and you do remember that it takes me three and a half hours to do this in a class. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> you're, you're aware of that part. Yeah. Yeah. So this yeah. is the way in which I approach the development. And actually, uh, Glenn, in tracing the development of type, I'm following the object relations development theory but just showing it in nine different ways. So it's standard psychology, but standard psychology looking at it with these nine different perspectives. Okay. So um, in looking at the, at the types or the formation of type, they really begin initially with uh, strategies and strategies uh, for getting along in the world and surviving. And so if you can um, imagine a circle Uh, And at the top of the circle, if you would place the number nine, and then from there, you can begin to, in a um, clockwise fashion, put in uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and eight equidistance around the circle, you'll you'll have the beginning of of an Enneagram diagram. So uh, the mental types would be uh, in the place of five and six and seven. And the reason that I begin there is because the common emotional experience uh, is fear. Uh, And it's fear that comes from a strategy of seeking safety and security. How early in life does a little human baby uh, capable of seeking safety or avoiding danger? It certainly is by the time a little uh, child can crawl. Mm-hmm. And so in the seeking then of safety and security, uh, the holding environment doesn't uh, provide, always provide safety. Uh, we're going to experience some kind of danger or interference with our safety and security. And the emotional response to that is fear. Mm-hmm. So all three of those types, the five, the six, and the seven, have uh, fear as their uh, core, uh, their, their core emotional habit the type six which is right in the middle between five and seven the the habit of emotion for the type six uh, is fear Mm. and it's seeing danger in the environment Uh, it's waking up with anxiety in the morning for no apparent cause Uh, it's uh, uh, being fearful uh, particularly because of just the sense that the environment is dangerous Mm The five, um, so, excuse me, I want to back up just a second. So the type six, very early in life then, and this becomes a pattern, by the way, these become patterns by the time we're seven years old. Mm. The first seven years, we're probably experimenting and uh, trying out all kinds of of, of, uh, strategies to get along in the world. But the pattern of emotion is firmly embedded by the time we're seven. Mm. So what the type six, the the little child, type six, loses by uh, developing this neural pathway of fear is they lose the quality of the life force, which is just simply uh, courage. It's just as a a capacity to respond with courage to the environment. The type five, uh, the fear is... Uh, directed inward and so in directing the fear inward the type 5 develops this habit called uh, avarice and it's an avarice that's holding on it's holding on to things it's uh, 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 avoiding too much uh, touch of of any kind of invasiveness uh, into the person's space Um, so what the type 5 loses as a natural quality of his life force is non-attachment. I don't mean detachment. I mean, non-attachment. So when, when to go back to avarice for, for a second, I've always understood avarice as like greed. 
Is that what you mean? Yes, it is the closest to that, but the the uh, greed is not typically all about money. Mm. Uh, we use greed a lot in money, mm-hmm. uh, but this avarice is for information in the mental center. Mm. Uh, is for uh, holding on to my stuff. Okay. Uh, the avoidance becomes emptiness. Uh, you know, if I'm trying to hold all things together. There was a wonderful story, a wonderful uh, woman student that I had a number of years ago who was a type 5. She was a nurse, and she was going to move to Kentucky to uh, join a hermitage where she could live in total simplicity of life with no belongings. And she describes her journey across the country in her VW bug crammed full of every single thing that she owned. So here she is going off to the monastery to be in simplicity, and she has everything she owns stuffed mm. into this little VW bug. That's mm. her average showing up. Okay, all right. That's her average showing up. Um, she's probably going in search of non-attachment. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, the uh, seven uh, externalizes or moves outward with the fear and tries to uh, get rid of the fear uh, with a habit of emotion called gluttony, where the gluttony is this emotional uh, desiring of experience and of, of more. So the gluttony shows up as a, a great variety of foods. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, I love the story of my friend, the, the Holy Friar, who was invited to to Christopher's restaurant for lunch, and he was so excited about this wonderful meal, but the best part was he got to take home six desserts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> One dessert was good, but six has got to be 20 times better than that. Mm-hmm. So there's this great gluttony for experience, and it eventually becomes almost a gluttony of mind um, of uh, having many uh, new and different ideas going and, on. And that's also a way of mitigating fear? Yes, the, the gluttony is of not coming in contact with the fear. You're much too uh, busy having pleasant experiences. Mm-hmm. So let's displace fear with having pleasant experiences. Yeah. So uh, moving around uh, counterclockwise and looking at two, three, and four, uh, that's uh, related to a strategy of seeking um, affirmation and esteem. That starts really early in life. I mean, you know, what do little babies do? They grab your finger, they grin at you, they smile and cuckoo. They, they do all these charming things that make you be in relationship with this little baby. And so when you leave, cut off the relationship, when, when the uh, whole environment of the baby uh, misses this connection with the caregiver, then the emotional response is distress. And you can, uh, I related to that a little bit earlier of what it looks like uh, if a mother gets up and leaves her 18-month-old baby, the baby hollers because he's not sure that mother's going to come back again. Uh, so it's a distress and that distress in the type three shows up as deceit. So let me try to do the emotion of deceit if you try to feel this along with me. So you're a young child and you're trying to um, uh, make connection and gain affirmation and esteem. And so like a little chameleon, you uh, put on a, a face or an expression that's going to draw me into relationship with you. Can you feel that sense of putting on an attitude or an appearance that is going to contribute to keeping you in relationship? The deceit here isn't telling a lie. It's the the conforming of myself in such a way that it enables or facilitates a staying in relationship mm-hmm. that in adulthood that shows up um, that shows up in uh, uh, 
in in the way that a type three dresses. Um, the type three will will typically be a very very well dressed. A woman three came to a, a class a number of years ago, and I in Saturday morning, you know, it's usually casual clothes. Yeah. She was dressed to the nines. I mean, she just looked spectacular. I said, well, uh, Kathleen, do you ever not look your absolute best? And she burst out laughing at that because her mother told her that when she was having her first baby, she didn't even break a sweat when she was in labor. You know, it doesn't make any difference what situation she is in. She's going she's gonna to look her best. And what the three loses as a quality of her life force is uh, something that's just around honesty. It's just the honesty of the relationship, whatever it happens to be. And, and so, for, so for a, for a three, because there's a such a, a, an emphasis on either being successful or appearing successful, that that the the, the deceit is a way of trying to conform you mentioned earlier that a three walking into a room would look around and see what do I need to do in order to kind of own this space to be the, the, the most successful person. They might, they might see someone that they think, Oh, this is the most successful person here. I'm going to emulate that person. And so it's, those are kind of the motivating things for a three. And rather than being like, um, I am who I am and I'm different and I'm beautiful, which would be more like a four that, that, they're, they're, that they're saying, I'm going to, I'll be dishonest if it means I can um, be successful or appear successful. Is that right? Yeah, well, except that I don't think that the three would ever uh, be aware of, oh, sure. okay. of being deceitful. There's yeah. no awareness that they're, that they're just putting it on. So it's not a conscious choice. It's just it's not a mean, conscious choice, and especially at the point yeah. at which it's formed. This is formed in childhood. Yeah. There is no, there's no such thing as conscious choice mm. at the place at which these emotions are becoming uh, habitual. Mm-hmm. So also at a Saturday class, it was um, uh, in the University of Arizona, or, uh, Arizona State University, uh, campus. Uh, and so there was a young man there who had uh, long hair, uh, ragged jeans, um, T-shirt. And he tells me he's a type three. I said, Joe, come on. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this is not working for me. He said, no, he said, Carol, you don't get it. He said, this is the perfect way for my culture to dress. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he, he was an ASU student. I've got to blend in and he was yeah. dressing for success. Yeah. <laughs> and he had on the right costume for the day. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <Interesting>. Perfect <laughs> for him. Um, so, so in the type two, the type two takes this distress and it goes outward. So this is a desire for affirmation and esteem. This is trying to make a connection, especially a heart connection. We can make a heart connection. And so the type two develops uh, what is called the emotional habit of pride. And I have to give you the, an Enneagram take on that. So as a type two, you're uh, in relationship and you'd like very much to be in relationship with a person. And the best way you can do that is by helping them. So when you care for the needs of your colleague, friend, husband, child. I want you to feel the hit that you get in your emotional center when it feels so good that you can take care of someone else's needs. I actually feel some people cringing (laughs) because maybe you don't really have a need that needs taking care of. Mm. But the whole identity of the type two gets involved with the sense of caring for other people in order to bind them in relationship. And the pleasant emotional hit that they get from being able to take care of others. One of the things I really like about the way you're saying these things, Carol, is is you're, you're saying, I want you to imagine what it feels like. Yes. And because you're talking about the, the, the twos, the threes, and the fours that are in this heart center that it's really about feeling, whereas the, 
seven, sixes, and fives you talked about earlier, more like mental thinking, which is where I am. I'm, I'm, I'm at a seven. So I'm, I'm hearing what you're saying and encouraging me to try to feel, but I can only like imagine, I can only think it. And so I don't really know how to access the feeling things. I feel like I'm, I feel like, I think that I don't know that I'm missing out on this dimension of what, so I'm listening to you say, how would it feel? And I'm trying to think of my wife who we think is a two and go, okay, now how does that actually feel for her? What is, what is she doing when she's, she's doing these kinds of things for me? I don't know. It's an interesting exercise. I, it's challenging. I'll just I'll say it's challenging. Well, uh, side remark to that, uh, uh, of, of the people in the mental center, the type five is probably the most mental of the mental center. Mm. Yeah. And if you ask, it's very typical. You ask a type five uh, how they feel, and they will always respond with, I think. Yeah. I said, no, no, I asked you how you feel. Well, I think. I think I feel. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, it's really a struggle to even get to that place of being aware of the feeling. Mm-hmm. And, um, so it's true. They, these are habits of emotion. And so it's helpful for us to try to get a sense of, well, so what does the emotion feel like? Mm-hmm. What is it telling me? What's the relationship in that emotion? Uh, the other is that none of these are bad. Right. These are all just responses to the environment and the way that I respond to the environment. Yeah. And then they get locked in. There's nothing wrong with having a habit either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so what the type two loses is the quality of life force, which is called humility, where you, what humility means is a truthfulness. It's the acceptance of a reality just as that reality is. As a, the, the two is trying to make it all about himself or herself. So if we go to the other side of three and go to the type four. Can, can, it, can I ask you about two before we move, move on there? So with the, with the pride and the humility on the two, yeah. real, it's, it's that these acts of service aren't really about the other person. They're about the two themselves that's trying to gain the acceptance through the act of service. And that, that's, that's why it's a prideful thing because it's about them. And that's why what they lose is the humility because they're not really doing these services for acts for other people. They're doing it for themselves. Did I, do I understand that right? That's correct. Okay. And, and remember that all of what you just said is unconscious. Yes. Right. The three-year-old child is not saying, well, now this is a really good strategy for me to pretend yeah. helping somebody. It's all unconscious. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. But Perfect. yes, that's exactly right. All right. And, and, and notice also uh, all of the types can be codependent, but think of how naturally um, a two might fall into codependence. Right. Yeah. Because it just feeds, it just feeds on that um, helpfulness, that pridefulness. Yeah. Okay, now we'll go to type four. All right, thank you, yeah. Okay, so again, we're still in the center that's about uh, distress and is about a a relationship, of wanting to be in relationship. But the type four internalizes this distress, and it shows up as envy. Mm. Now, the understanding, the Enneagram understanding of envy is longing for what is absent. Mm. The longing for what is absent. So, you know, um, an example that I that I make up or use in, in class uh, is to be uh, delighted that uh, these people are here to spend the day with me. But uh, sadly, my friend Joan, who told me that she was going to come, didn't show up today. And I think it would have been such a good class for her. And I just feel so sad that uh, that she isn't here. I, I, I sort of am longing for her presence. It's nice that the rest of you are here, but I'm longing for her presence here because she's absent. So there's this, if I've done this half decently, uh, you hopefully are feeling this longing within your own heart or within your own body uh, for someone or something that is absent. 
And strangely, when the absent becomes present, uh, you don't care. It's about the longing itself. It's about the longing itself. So what the what the four loses in the quality of the life force or quality of the heart, it loses just this balance called equanimity of having a, a kind of equanimity around uh, presence and absence, um, and both are okay. But by by equanimity, do you mean like a balance? Uh, actually, all all nine of these virtues. Uh, represent balance of some kind Mm. it's what our heart looks like or what our life force looks like when we are um, stable and balanced but yes equanimity is very much balance so you'd have like envy on one side of the spectrum and equanimity on the other um so so trying to think of a synonym because i'm not as familiar with the word equanimity Mm -hmm. Uh, or contentment with what you have? It's, I think contentment like, comes close. Yeah, okay. I think contentment comes close. Okay. All right. I, I don't want to say serenity because serenity is really a, a peace. Sure. P-E-A-C-E. Mm-hmm. And that's going to come up as the uh, virtue of the type one. So serenity is not exactly the same as equanimity. Okay. There's a different quality in serenity than there is in equality, equanimity. Equanimity, yeah. You know, um, so I'm going to take another little uh, detour, little side detour. Okay. When we uh, when we work with uh, the uh, virtues uh, in a class, uh, that it takes us a while to get there because we have to identify the the passion or habit of emotion first. But if we have a room full of people, meaning we've got all nine types present, and they begin to uh, find their virtue, the experience of their virtue, uh, they then experience all nine of the virtues. So on, on that little diagram, you'll notice that where you are, for example, in your little box of, of the habit of gluttony, mm-hmm. if you are able to move inward and experience constancy, your virtue, mm-hmm. that as you experience constancy, you will notice that you also experience courage and non-attachment and equanimity and honesty and humility uh-huh. because they are all qualities of an enlivened and balanced life force that you have access to. So, and, and on the, on the diagram that you use in class that we're looking at right now, that there's dotted lines in between the constancy, the courage, the non-attachment, the equanimity, the, and, and that represents that ability to kind of flow between them. Yes. That's okay. the intent. Okay. That's the intent. Yeah. Is that there's a, the, the intent of the diagram is that shows us that we are stuck in a box. Mm-hmm. Due to our early childhood formation and the way out of the box is through our own personality type to these inner qualities uh, of the virtues and holy ideas. And when we do so, we experience all of the virtues and we experience all of the holy ideas. Hmm. Now that you say, well, who made up this, who made up this model? Hmm. Uh, The model, at least in the last 30 to 40 years, uh, comes from the observation of people's experience. Mm. I mean, yeah. by you know, observation and interview of tens of thousands of people, right. uh, uh, continuing to reinform and and uh, reinforce this uh, this model that's being presented. Yeah. So we have another center to go to, uh, and that's the three types that are at the top of the enneagram: the eight, and the nine, and the one, mm-hmm. and the uh, strategy that is used uh, by these people is power and control. It's power and control in service uh, in, in service of belonging, in service of uh, relationship, and in service of, of um, survival. And when the world doesn't cooperate with me as a child, if the holding environment interferes with my desire for power and control, my emotional response is anger. It's a pushback against you're limiting me. You're mm-hmm. not letting me have my way. 
you're interfering with me. I can't get along here. And so the emotional response is anger. Um, and so the center of the anger is the type nine. And the type nine is anger that goes to sleep. Mm. It's an anger that goes to sleep. It's almost not even a repressed anger. There's not enough recognition of anger to repress it. It's just keep it asleep. Keep it from manifesting. Keep that anger down. It, it, it actually is much like um, a, um, a, a, a imagining a cork in a volcano. Of just stuffing it and keeping it uh, out of mind. So, mm-hmm. so the emotion it doesn't have a pretty name. It's called sloth, uh, and sloth is just this asleepness mm-hmm. to the vitality of the life force. Mm-hmm. It's this asleepness to this emotion of anger, uh, which is very uncomfortable. Can, can can I ask? And this might be just a little mini detour, but but of these. Uh, passions that are that are in the outer circle, like sloth. We did pride. We did gluttony. You know, fear, avarice, envy. Is, is there a correlation between these and the seven deadly sins, but with two more for the enneagram? Absolutely. Is that is that kind of and this? And this will un, undo. This will, for me, this undoes that uh, spurious uh, doctrine of original sin. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is uh, uh, held in the, the Western Christian tradition. It's not in the Jewish tradition. It's not in the Eastern Christian tradition. It all uh, flows out of the experience of, of the wonderful St. Augustine, uh, but of his take. So the answer to your question is yes, Glenn. One of, one of the earliest origins of the Enneagram is with Avagrius, who is one of the desert fathers. So in the fourth century, uh, into the third century, into the third, early fourth century, Evagrius took himself off to the desert in order to um, uh, find union with God. So he's in the he's in Egypt, uh, the deserts of Egypt, and he's trying to enter into union with God, and something gets in the way, and the thing that gets in the way is sloth. Anger, pride, deceit, or not deceit, envy, avarice, gluttony, and lust. Uh, he actually named eight of these, and one of them got lost. So he discovered that these became barriers to his relationship and union with God. And that got transmitted, his teaching, Evagris' uh, uh, experience, got transmitted around the Mediterranean, uh, up into Syria, and then up into Europe, and became um, part of the um, uh, teaching of early monasticism in uh, the West. So it became, it got embedded into uh, Benedictine and Western monasticism, Mm -hmm. and it got um, uh, put into a system by... uh, Pope Gregory, I think it was Gregory the fifth or sixth, uh, in which he then named these the cardinal sins. Okay, yeah. it was the he he got seven, and they were known as the seven deadly sins. Mm. And Augustine uh, transmitted the seven deadly sins into original sin as a sexually transmitted disease that came from the very act of procreation itself. Yeah. And what we see in this today that is that the core the core human being in relationship with the divine, that the qualities of the essence of the human are these uh, virtues and holy ideas of goodness and holiness. And all of these, um, what we would call seven deadlies, are habits of emotion that arise during the first seven years as our lives uh, as a response to try to make our way in the world. And, and, and the way that, that the Enneagram looks at these, you've said this a couple of times, as, as the formation of an ego isn't necessarily a bad thing or a sin the way that it would have been talked about as a seven deadly sin. But these are, these are habits that are developed in order to um, 
interact in, in the world and respond to the, the well, world around. Is that right? So, yes. Well, look, fear, none, none of these is something which is intrinsically evil or right. bad. Yeah. Uh, if, if, if you're confronted with uh, danger or injustice uh, or attack, uh, what does the emotion of anger do for you? Yeah, it, it protects you. Protects you, yeah. <laughs> so, so at its root and core, I mean, anger doesn't start with human beings. It's deeply embedded in the whole mammalian, uh, all mammalian species. Yeah, that animals will protect themselves with anger, or 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 with fear. Run, get out of the way. Is fear intrinsically evil? Absolutely not. Fear is the very same thing. To develop a neurobiological, physiological habit of fear or of anger or of lust or of envy then just becomes an automatic habit that's, in, that's um, uh, running on automatic instead of really responding to a real situation. Yeah. So you're getting the sense of, of these are developed for good reason and give good benefit, but become limiting and imprisoning at some point in our development that we can, go, and we can go beyond them. All right. You get it? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So the type nine sloth yeah. yep. uses a quality of the life force called action, which is the virtue of the type nine. And it's just seeing which action, which steps to take and to move and, and to take action. The type one uh, the uh, passion is anger, but it's it's the repression of anger. The anger's experience is bad, and so the type one represses anger. Uh, so I want you to see if you can uh, see what it feels like in your body if you're angry, but you're going to repress it because it's not nice to be angry. I, I think as a, as a seven who has spent time in one, I probably know what that's like <laughs> to repress anger. <laughs> so what does it feel like? Uh, when I, I, I'm, I'm thinking of a time when I was really angry at my ex-wife for lying to the police and having me thrown in jail. And so as I was sitting there in jail, plotting my revenge and I made the decision, no, I'm not going to go down a vengeful path the way that I felt at that time was peace. So that serenity that's right there um, for, for a one. Right um, there. Yeah. So, that, so that's so, how it so felt. You felt the conversion by staying present with your anger. Mm -hmm. You were able to let, allow it to open you to serenity. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so backing up to feeling anger repressed in my body, my body immediately gets very rigid. My jaw gets rigid. My teeth clench. And and that's the re that's the repression of the anger. That's not the anger itself. It's it's anger. I can see it in the other person. I can mm -hmm. see the anger, but it's not coming out as loud behavior. Mm -hmm. Something out. It's you can see oh, right. that energy that's being restrained. Yes. Yeah. That clenching. I job. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I'm not angry with you, Glenn, but if you, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what is lost in, uh, in, in this uh, passion of anger, repressed anger um, is serenity is peacefulness. And you just described that so beautifully that you caught yourself in a place of being angry and of, uh, I want to, maybe I'm projecting on you, but of staying present to it and letting it go. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't, I don't really know what the staying present to it means, except that I knew that it was there and that I, that it wasn't really going to serve me in the end. And I just didn't want, I didn't like how it felt. I didn't want any part of it. And that might be the fear aversion. I don't know. It's like the, the, of the sevenhood thing, but um, yeah, yeah, that was, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm glad you, I, I'm, I'm glad you walked me through that to think about what it feels like to clench that, that 
clenched, like I'm trying to control the anger. I'm trying to control the rage that I'm feeling. Um, yeah, I can, I can relate to that. Yes. Okay. Well, so if you can relate to that and you catch on to that feeling, you know what it feels like, then you can use your recognition of the feeling to recognize that you're angry and holding anger. Mm -hmm. And then you can say, is this anger because there's something off in the environment that I need to take action? Or is this a habit? Yeah. Is it in the present moment? Or is this a bunch of stuff I've been carrying with me for the last 30 years? Yeah. Then you can work with that. Yeah. Yeah. So the the last then is the type eight, uh, which is on the other side of nine. And the this is anger, which is uh, full-blown out there and manifest. And so the emotion or the passion is loosed. It's, it's lust. But it isn't just sexual. This is the German word loose, which is simply excessive high energy. So this is big energy pouring out, streaming out um, of the person. Uh, a type uh, eight uh, will, well, they, they look like it. You can see it in a type eight. But a type eight will tell you that they uh, puff themselves up like a big chicken. Yeah. Uh, or a bird are just puffing themselves up in such a way that uh, uh, this is such a commanding energetic uh, presence that you're going to do what I want or else, or else you're going to get a blast of energy coming out, coming at you. So we see this big high energy coming uh, out of, of the type eight and the quality of the life force that, that is uh, lost or is not uh, in experience is the virtue of innocence where in um, in the Enneagram perspective the meaning of innocence here is um, just enough energy just as much energy as required of meeting uh, of meeting the circumstances of the moment here in the moment uh, rather than a bunch of piled up energy from the past it's not a naive, it does not mean naivete. It's this uh, balance in the, uh, in, the, in the experience of energy within the person's um, inner experience. All right. So, um, so we're, maybe I can briefly uh, talk about how these become habits of mind. Okay. Um, and... So let's start, uh, let's start just with uh, the type one, and we'll go around the Enneagram from type one to type nine. And it's not surprising that having established a habit of emotion, that by the time we're 10, 12 years old, uh, and we're beginning to do formal operational thinking, that we uh, develop habits of thinking um, and of, a, of attention that become neurophysiological habits, just like the emotions were before. So... The type one, the fixation, the habit of mind, the fixation, uh, becomes one of resentment or of perfectionism. So the perfectionism is this uh, wanting everything to be just exactly right and just exactly perfect. And the resentment is, I don't know if there's such a thing as mental anger, but it's a mental stance of really resenting it when you get away with stuff I can't do. I must behave like a good girl at all times. And it, I am so resentful when you are a bad boy and you get away with it. Uh, it's the resentment for your misbehavior uh, when I am uh, obviously around uh, perfect behavior. Yeah. The holy idea of the type one um, is a wholeness. It's perfection itself. It's the... It's the when you say the holy idea, is, is that like what they're striving for? They're... Oh, no. Thank you for asking the question. You don't get to strive for a quality which you already have. Okay. You, you will enter into practice and relationships of bringing you into an orientation where you can receive, identify, name, 
and experience the holy idea, which is always already there. The holy idea is a part, a quality of your life force, of your core self, of this inner self around which the um, uh, personality is formed. So is it, is it like an unconscious recognition of this piece of themselves that already exists so that, so a one recognizes that they already do have this wholeness or perfection. And then they see any deviation from that with resentment or the, those perfectionistic tendencies. Is that the relationship between the inner and the outer? So, you know, I'm not sure whether I heard you correctly, but I, th- yeah. I think I did. I think that what you just caught is, is that the, um, the, uh, Mental fixation is a, an imitation. It's a poor imitation of the holy idea, which is what is my inner core really looks like. Mm. Now, this this ten year old child is not in a, a strong contact, conscious contact with his own heart, with his own self. So, it's the best you can do. Yeah. But you're quite correct that, interestingly, the entire um, uh, ego structure, in a very strong sense, is a limited imitation of that which I already am at my core self. Mm. Yeah, I think I think I said an unconscious recognition, which is probably impossible because <laughs> once you once you recognize something, you become conscious or aware of it, right? Right, but, and that's where, that's where I thought you were going with the question. Yeah, work, and when you do come to a recognition, it's not unconscious; it's awakening to yeah. that reality that's already within you. Gotcha. Okay, so it's not right. an unconscious; it's conscious and awake, but not through the mode of attention mm. which, or sensation of, of the five senses, which are made for the outer world. The recognition, the awakening, comes through another modality. Okay. Attuning, resonating, inner, inner sensing. It's received. It's a received experience. You cannot accomplish it. It would be like, you know, waking up one day and say, well, I think I'm going to be alive today. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm yeah. sorry. You, you, don't, you don't get to do that. Yeah. So um, um, I've got 10 minutes left and I have to. Leave. Okay. All right. Uh, so we'll, we'll try this and if necessary, we'll come back. Okay. So the type, uh, so the type two this is in the heart center, and this is the person whose passion is pride. Uh, the mental fixation uh, come, becomes flattery. So again, I'm trying to be in relationship with you, and uh, you're not cooperating very well. So a way of really amping up is for me to tell you how wonderful you are, how handsome, how studly, how much I'd really like to be in relationship with you. In uh, your sense is... Maybe I'm telling the truth, but I don't know you well enough to talk like that. You see, so this is flattery. I just um, encountered a, a type two in a, a program that I was um, at this last week, uh, and I've never met this person before in my life. And she starts with, "Oh, you're one of the important people, aren't you?" <laughs> and it went on from there. I thought she doesn't know me. She has no idea. <laughs> She's looking for a relationship. Uh, and so the quality, uh, the, the holy idea that the type two loses or does not experience is freedom. And the freedom here is the freedom to go with the flow of reality, to go with the flow of reality in, um, in the universe itself. The type three, the mental uh, fixation is uh, called vanity or efficiency. And it's this mental stance that I can do anything and everything and do it uh, very effectively. Uh, this is the person whose passion um, is um, whose passion is deceit in service of 
trying to keep relationship. And now I do it with my mind uh, in, uh, in the same kind of way of behaving as if I can do all things. Uh, what the holy idea of the type three is, uh, the quality of the heart, is it uh, holy hope, where holy hope is the ability to trust the present to unfold in an optimizing way. It's not my doing. Yeah. I can enter into and trust the universe to unfold optimally. The type four, uh, the type four is uh, the passion is envy. It's longing for the absent. Uh, so uh, the mental habit becomes a habit uh, of a specialness that, you know, no one feels as deeply as I do. I'm uh, just, I'm terribly precious upon this planet because of the depth of my feeling. Uh, the other word that's used to describe this a habit of mind is melancholy, uh, because in the type four, melancholy has this taste of sweetness. There's a sweet sadness. And so they can uh, sit in this mental place of a melancholy mind, and it becomes gives them specialness um, and uh, it gives them uh, a depth, a feeling of depth. What the four loses is called holy, holy origin. And the holy origin for the four is the uh, realization, the recognition, the knowing with certainty of being connected to her source, of there being a direct connection to source. There is nothing missing when I'm corrected, when I'm connected to source. The type five, that type five has the emotion of avarice, of the emotion of holding of things in, holding in my energy and not sharing my energy or presence and holding on. And so mentally, this becomes a stinginess of mind. I know all things and I'm not going to tell you what it is that I know. Or I'll tell you just a little bit, and I'll tell Krishna another little bit, but I'm not going to tell either one of you everything that I know. There's also this quality of mind of intellectualizing that you can almost see in the type five, where you see all the energy in the five go up into the person's head, that the energy is held up in the mental center. And, you know, how do you feel today? Well, I think... So everything gets intellectualized in the in the type five's um, experience, and what the five uh, misses or loses is the holy idea of wisdom, that is of knowing all things in a direct manner, knowing whatever is necessary um, in a direct manner. The type six, the type six. Um, is uh, the emotional habit of fear. And so the mental habit actually goes two ways. One of the ways is towards a habit of dogma. Uh, this really speaks to us in relationship on our religious traditions, because much of what is going on there is the need to cling to dogma, because it gives us certainty. Right. If we have a body of truth proclaimed by the church, then it gives us certainty, and the certainty alleviates our fear. So some of that uh, business around dogma. So clinging to dogma is a natural outcome for the type 6 personality and is strengthened and, and, and fed by the type 6 personality, mm -hmm. or can be, or can be. Uh, so the uh, the other part of the type six, uh, the mental quality is a doubt. Uh, the type sixes frequently doubt themselves. They doubt their own decisions. Uh, one of my nephews is a type six. He's he can come to making a decision very very quickly. He can assess the situation very well, make a decision, and ten minutes later he doubts that his decision is a good one. So he starts over again. And then he doubts that decision, and he starts over again. 
So there's this uh, putting off of action because of the doubt that he can actually do what it is that he's uh, decided that uh, he's put forward for himself. And the holy idea that is lost in this attitude towards doubt or dogma is faith, where in Enneagram speak, what faith is, is not intellectual assent to doctrine. Faith is the certainty of knowing that I participate, that I participate in being, that I participate in love, that I participate in, uh, in divine presence. And then the type seven, the type seven has the emotional habit of, of gluttony, of liking lots of things, lots of stuff to fill up my emotional life or my physical life. And so mentally, this becomes planning, planning, uh, living in the future and planning, but planning for pleasurable outcomes. So you'll see the type five, the type uh, seven, uh, with a very, very active uh, imagination, uh, planning and imagining uh, wonderful vacations, wonderful relationships, wonderful experiences, and uh, continually sorting for planning a future that is full of many pleasurable options. Uh, and what the seven loses as the holy idea or regains as a holy idea after doing inner work uh, is work, uh, where the holy idea of work is uh, recognizing that I am part of the work of the unfolding of the whole universe. I'm part of the unfolding of the whole uh, being unfolding and manifesting in time, and I'm a part of that. I'm part of the work, um, and I can participate in the work. The type eight, uh, we're back now into that uh, anger center. The type eight uh, is the passion of Luz, which is big, high energy uh, blasting out at all times. Um, and one of the mental ideas, uh, one of the mental fixations is around vengeance. You see, if, if, um, if you do something to me that is uh, dishonest or hurtful um, or damaging, I am going to get vengeance. I am going to get even. Uh, you may not see it coming and you may not know it was from me, but I will get even with you. So there's this balancing of the scales um, by uh, this attitude of revenge and of vengeance. The holy idea for the type eight uh, is truth. It's simply uh, a quality of being itself that ultimate reality is true. It is true, it is good, it is beautiful. What the eight recognizes is the oneness of reality, the oneness of being. It recognizes holy truth. And the nine, which we ought really to have started with, is the passion of anger that's gone to sleep. So the fixation, the mental fixation, is a mind that goes to sleep uh, and just becomes uh, indolent, uh, resigned, having no preferences, uh, no attitudes, uh, just a lazy, slothful mind um, uh, that doesn't take much action. And the holy idea of the type nine is the core of the whole Enneagram. It's holy love. I can't describe holy love to you because it's um, so um, a foundational and, and intrinsic that it, it uh, cannot be defined in other terms. But it is holy love itself. And it, and it brings us right back to the beginning of the conversation, right when we need to end, because when you were 13 and you fell in love with the Catholic Church and catechism, it was because of the love of God, that holy love. Because of the love of God, yes. That, that I, I, that I, I discovered it wasn't about the catechism and all the formalities, yeah. that those were vessels that bring it forth, but that the love of God itself, who is the reality. Yeah. Is the reality. Well, th thank you very much, Carol. I know we've, we've run a couple of minutes over, um, but it's so much to process. 
so much to process, but I really appreciate it. And I, I look forward to future interactions and, and conversations that I know that we'll have. Well, I'd love to. Thank you very much for the opportunity. And I wish you best wishes on your uh, on your venture here into the Enneagram land. Yes. You're going to have a lot of fun, Glenn. Yeah, thank you. It's going to give you many uh, pleasurable options. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Sounds good to my sevenness. All right. I'll get to work. Right. <laughs> Thanks, Carol. I'll talk with you later. All right. Thank you. Hi, this is Hillary. Matthew Ryan. Carol Keith. Dashley. And I like to play bingo online while listening to Infants on Thrones. You can comment on this episode on the website, infantsonthrones.com. And if you really like what you hear, give the quorum a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes. I did. I did. I did. Anyone for the closing prayer? Thank you for listening to Infants on Thrones. Infants on Thrones.